My phone is pinging all morning with all my children from around the world. It's just I didn't give any birth to them, except spiritual birthing. And so this morning, I represent all of the mothers who didn't birth a baby. And all of the single women who are fruitful and who pour into other people's children and all of the adoptive mothers and all of you who have been adopted by some spiritual mother or however a woman has mothered you, give thanks to God for mothers. <clears throat> There are some mothers who almost smother, but they learn along the way how to release. Uh, they so care, they are so giving. And I want to thank the Lord personally that he saw that I needed two mothers. And it wasn't because my birth mother wasn't enough it was because he wanted to use me as a chosen child for a barren woman in Georgia. And he redirected my whole life. I went to Florida uh, planning to be married and found that it, that it wasn't, well, I'll tell you why. Because my fiance said, I just can't take responsibility for your ministry. And I said, ministry? What ministry? I'm not, a, I'm not a minister. I'm a school teacher. And I'm going to Africa to teach. That was my whole life's dream from the time I was four. And uh, God redirected all of that. And I ended up being invited to go to a conference in Waycross, Georgia. And I said to the person who invited me, why would I go to Waycross, Georgia? And he said, I don't know. I just believe that you'd enjoy the conference, the worship. I think they're your kind of people. And he said, uh, he said, people are there from all around the southeast. And then he said, I don't know. I just think God wants you there. And on that, my life turned. Literally turned for my whole life. That was 56 years ago. I was 24. I was trying to get to Africa. About six times I came up to it, and it wouldn't be the time. And there was a school there, and I was going to spend my life there. I was going to be buried alongside Mama Noel at Bakuria Mission, Elam's first mission base in Kenya. That was my whole life's goal and dream, and everybody who knew me knew it, and God stopped it all along the way. As I went to that place for that convention, I left on a Saturday night thinking I'd never be back. I was there for 26 hours. The next day, things turned around. I met another evangelist, my friend's fiance, and... Uh, he wanted to know all about that convention. And I finally said, Harold, if you want to know about that convention, get on US 1 North, and you can be there in about an hour and a half, 
They have a service this afternoon and tonight. And he said, well, come on, let's go. I said, no, not me. I have to go south. I teach school hours away from here. And his fiance said to me, come on, Syl, let's go. And on that, my life turned. I sat down in the service. I wasn't there two minutes. And the pastor, a lady pastor, said, the lady from Coco, you sing, don't you? And I looked all around the place to see who's there from Coco. Because I was still the lady from New York. I'd just been down south a few months. She said, Evans, I believe your name is. And I said, and she said, you sing, don't you? And I said, yes. Would you please prepare a song for us? And all, all the time I had been there, Friday night and Saturday, I had seen this glowing countenance on the pianist. Dark hair, beautiful smile. And they'd say, Sister Dorothy, give us a chorus. And she'd hit the keyboard from one end to the other, start the song at the same time she put her keys, her hands on the keys, and everybody would start singing, and then the song leader would come up. And then they'd ask somebody to sing, and they'd come up and whisper in her ear, and she'd hit the keys and play all the way through. And some would put a sheet music in front of her, and she'd glance at it and never look at it again. She played anything that anybody wanted her to. So I had a song. It was called The Stranger of Galilee. So I whispered in her ear, as others had, and I said, do you know the song, Stranger of Galilee? Yes, what key? Well, either A, fat, a flat or B flat. So she ran the arpeggios, and I was at the pulpit by that time to sing, and she was bouncing all over that keyboard and the song I was about to sing, I'll go ahead and tell you. She knew a four-part, moving parts, quartet song called The Stranger of Galilee. I still have the sheet music for it <clears throat> in memory because my whole life turned on this. And I said, I'm singing. Now, I have a problem with my voice, so I can't sing it for you the way I sang it for them. But it was... Maybe some of you know it. In fancy I stood, very slow, very lyrical, and she's all over the keyboard. <laughs> and she's trying to figure out why I'm going so slowly, and she realizes it's not, and she, she tries all the way through, because in the songbook, it's a whole page a verse and a whole page of chorus and I felt I could love him and she stopped I stopped and I said it'd be easier in the other key <laughs> so she ran beautiful arpeggios <laughs> and played two measures and stopped and left me to sing solo solo and I did she says that she came up to me afterwards to apologize 
I had to I had to go home with her. And and God was in it. And so she asked me to come back again because they asked me to sing again that night. And I still had to be at school at 8 o'clock in the morning, four and a half hours away. And I stayed. I had to go to her home. And of course, she's a Georgia woman, so she was worried whether I had anything to eat. And she had to feed me first. I walked over to her piano. I saw a book that looked familiar from across the room. It was Rita Callaghan's Psalms, Scripture Set to Music by Rita Callaghan, published at Elam Bible Institute. When she came in, I said, do you know Rita Callaghan's songs? I don't know if any of you have been to Elam in years past when we sang, Praise ye the Lord. That was one of them. And, and uh, she said, no, I don't. Somebody gave me that book. And she tried to figure out who it was, some preacher that came. And, and she said, do you know them? I said, I know Rita Callaghan. She's, she was my father's Sunday school teacher when he was a little boy. She's 89 years old now, and she's blind. She's been blind for years. And, and I was there when she was writing these psalms. And she's in a nursing home now, and I just saw her at Christmas time. And that night she wrote me a note and said, because I was singing again, I was sitting with her. I want you to come back and teach me those psalms. I said, okay, when? She said, next week. I said, okay. I came back next week. Came in on Saturday night. I guess we practiced a psalm or two. I got into Sunday morning service sitting on the front row beside her. And halfway through the pastor's sermon, God dropped something on me. Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren, sing. And for a half hour, thankfully the preacher preached long, for a half hour, I wrestled with God. What do you want me to do with that? I do not know if she is a barren woman. I did not ask her. There are pictures on the wall of families with young children. I assumed they were her children and grandchildren. I had never, ever given a personal prophecy in public. Now, you've seen me do it here. I had never done that. They had communion, so she went to the piano. They ushered us up. Take communion. They usher you back. And all that time, I'm hyperventilating. I'm fighting with God. 
When it's about a barren woman, how many of you know there's only a 50% chance that you're going to be right? It's not like saying God just wants you to know he loves you today. So I would yield and everything would stop and I'd be calm and then I'd say, but I can't, I can't do that. I'm a visitor. I'm a visitor. They don't even know me. I... And then he would turn my arm from fire to ice. All of you that are looking for prophetic gifting, it's not always fun. <laughs> I finally realized if the ushers are taking communion, the time is up. And I finally said to God, okay. And I gave him something really hard. I said, if she gets up from that piano and goes up there to take communion, which I had never in my life seen a pianist do, because you had to keep playing with one hand while you took the communion that they put on the other end of the piano. I had never seen a pianist leave a piano. Got to keep the music going. And then I decided to make it twice as hard to do something that she never did. Think about a fleece. Do you give it to God and he has to find out how to do it quickly? Or did God in his all-knowing know what he was about to do and give it to you? And so I said, if she goes up there and she kneels at the altar, which not one other person had done, and I no sooner did it, she reached to the end of the piano and picked up her handkerchief, because ladies always had handkerchiefs in those days, walked past me, took the communion. I don't know whether she took it or took it with her, but where'd she go? Straight down. And I must have had a shock on my face watching because the pastor looked at me and then walked from behind the altar railing. Do you remember altar railings? She walked from behind there with her head kind of down, came around the piano, looked up at me. I stepped forward. It was, you had a song here about eyes to eyes, you know. Well, her eyes met mine and mine met hers. She said to me, Sylvia, I said, I, I, I think God has given me a word for Dorothy. Well, then you must give it. Follow me. And she walked me around behind. And I said, I believe the Lord is speaking, Isaiah 54. Sing, O Baron. Sing. And she melted into tears. Stretch forth the curtains of the habitation for the Lord has given you or will give you Curtain stretchers. Any old people here remember the old curtain stretchers for stretching curtains? Well, this was a new kind of curtain stretcher. It means the curtains of a tent. The Lord will give you curtain stretchers. Children, even children, many children. And the heart of your husband will be joined with your heart as it never has been joined before. Through the children that the Lord will give you. And I had this crazy thing happen because I had never prophesied before. I didn't know that you could do this. That while the Spirit is speaking these words, things happen in your brain. And this thing went across my brain, of, and you're going to be one of them. And I'm arguing with myself, where did that come from? What makes you think you'd ever be one of them? 
And the word of the Lord is flowing to this woman who is weeping. She became my Georgia mama. She was totally barren, had wept many, 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 many times for children, loved children. The pastor even came down and spoke to the children in the congregation to explain the prophetic word that God just said he was going to give her children. You know, everyone knows, you children all know how Sister Dorothy loves children. But she's never given birth to a child. And so she explained there are different ways that God can give a child. And it might be through adoption or there are spiritual mothers. And she explained it all to the children. And I was the first of the chosen children for that family. And they, they couldn't be any more family. But you can imagine what kind of challenge that might have put in my family. But God had already spoken to my mother that I was not coming back north after the wedding was canceled. And in fact, she had prayed to God that he would give me a family around me down there. And I have lived, now both of them gone to heaven. Mama Jones from Georgia just went two years ago. My mother and father and her husband in 2008. The rest of the year was the cancer in my leg. That's how I remember 2008. Why did God do that? Part of it was what he was doing in my life to prepare me for the ministry that my mother and father had dedicated me to. When I ended up in a school system in South Georgia right at the time of integration, and things were tough, I was a choral director, just part-time at that time. I had finished academic teaching and left the school where I was, and then another school called me, and a principal asked me, please, to come and help him with his choral program. I was up one night at 2 o'clock in the morning saying to the Lord, what am I doing here? This is, I don't, I don't know how to resolve What's happening here? And he said, you spelled, George, uh, you spelled Africa wrong. I said, A-F-R-I-C-A? Or is it a K-A over there? He said, G-E-O-R-G-I-A. Now go in there and be a missionary. And I did, he gave me a plan. I actually segregated. Nobody dared to do such a thing. And I took my African students. And then I took the white students. And God gave me favor with them and brought them into unity. And the last songs we sang in our concert were the Hallelujah Chorus and the Amen, the sevenfold Amen. And I didn't have to direct them. I had them addicted to my face. I closed my eyes, put my hands down, 
and we soared in unity. And not until I was totally out of school teaching, working full-time in a church, into ministry, not until then did God let me go to Africa. And it was a gift ticket from people of the church and the community because one little old lady found out how I loved Africa and wanted to go there. And I held up this ticket because the pastor who presented it to me had held on to it when I tried to take it. And he said, before I give it to you, you need to know it's a round trip ticket. <laughs> and it's for two weeks. And we expect you to be back to work after two weeks. And I went home and held that ticket up and said to God, two weeks? I wanted to spend my whole life there. What was it? Prototype of everything that I do. And that's been prophesied to me more than once. You'll go and come, and you'll go and come, and I won't take time to tell you that. But I go for two weeks sometimes. I take a team. We couldn't go this year, but our last team that we took was 40 people of medical and dental and children's ministries. If you want to join us and you're not going with Rick or somebody else around here, then talk to Tess. But God is, is always ahead of us. And when I look back on it now, of how God directed my life, took me to Florida for what I thought was a certain purpose. But there he had Mama Dickinson. Anybody that's old Elam would know who Mama Dickinson is, or if you know Faith Dodge, it's her mother. And God gave me 10 months being mentored by Mama Dickinson, spiritual mama to me spiritual grandmother. She herself, and a tremendous exhorter and preacher, but prophetic woman. And for 10 months, she'd give me Holy Ghost back rubs. Honey, honey, it's a true word now. You must begin to say, thus saith the Lord. And I go, I could never do and she was calling forth the prophetic gift within me before I went to Waycross. God is working on many, many levels. And so I speak to all of the women in the room. You don't, you don't have to be limited to your own birth children. By the way, even just saying that, makes me mad at what's happening. They chose the week before Mother's Day to put it on the news that you're going to be stripped of your title mother. How many have heard it? Oh, it's on the news now. Starting in our Congress, you're going to be called, no, not just you, because it may be a man because mother is a gender word. And so you're going to be called birthing people. So happy birthing people's day. <laughs> Literally. They are working 
they are working to do this because who's to say that a man can't give birth? But he might not be a man anymore. And so <laughs> you don't want to do that. You witnessed what it cost, didn't you? That would be foolish, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. Just bow your head and pray for our nation. Just bow your head and pray for our nation right now. And bless mothers. And we thank you, Lord, that you created woman. And that you made male and female. And we thank you for Eve, the mother of all living. And we thank you for our own mothers, and we thank you for every mother in this room. But I also thank you for the women who have never given birth but have mothered many. And I thank you for the single women in the room who, like me, can be mothers, and mothers and mothers and mothers in the Lord. And so now, as I go to the Word, and I have used my own personal story, I ask you to help us to understand mothers. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want to tell you, mothers, whichever kind of mother you are. And by the way, with Dorothy Jones, Fred and Dorothy, he, he wanted to legally adopt me. I said, he was taking me to a lawyer. I said, you can't legally adopt me. I have a perfectly good set of parents in New York. He said, I know that. I'll adopt them too. And he brought them down and showed them the house that he had built. And my dad was still, they were still pastoring. And, and so they couldn't come. But after they retired, he at least got them to come down for the winter time, so he could take care of them. God did a beautiful work between them. And, uh, and we're all family by the grace of God. God has plans. But I, I need to add one more thing. God's purpose for me. Taking me there as a school teacher. And right now, when I go down there, my students from 1965 through 1970-something, my students are the ones who have gathered around me and make sure that I've got milk and bread when I arrive in town and do you have a ride to the airport. My students from those days, 50-something years ago. And they're like my kids still. They're grandmothers and grandfathers. I'm still 10 years older than they are. But I can look back now that God took me to that area because he had a plan for a great revival movement, charismatic movement. And he gave me visions of a great river coming from west side. You get west side from where I am is on this side. To the east, meeting in a city called Moultrie. And he took me to Moultrie. And a move of God. And there's a great, great church that has grown out of that, a regional church. You never know what God has in mind for you 
Let me tell you something. Your mother probably does if she's a godly woman. My mother, she's little. Some of you might know Dan Larkin, missionary from this area. He's my mother's younger brother. And uh, I want to talk with you about the fact that God makes deals with mothers. Say it to me, please. God makes deals with mothers. And he makes covenants with fathers. The Abrahamic covenant, the David covenant about his seed sitting on his throne. And it's the same seed that God promised Abraham would bless the whole world. And when you sang that song about the blessing and your children and their children, I want you to believe for it. Even you who are single, even though you are young and not married yet, begin to believe that God will put things together. And if things haven't been going well with your own children, they sang a song for you too. It was the battle song up here. That's the song for mothers. What was it? I tried to, the battle belongs to you, Lord, and I'll sing through the night. Mother, in fact, I wouldn't mind if you close with that song for mothers, because that's what mothers do. They don't just stay up because you're sick in the night. They stay up because you're sinning. They stay up because you're out of the will of God. They stay up because your heart is hurting. They stay up because you are in trouble. They stay up because you don't know what's right for you to do. And because you are across the world. But I tell you, the apron strings of prayer can stretch around the world and wrap around the world as many times as you take the trip. The mother can go with you. She will if she is a godly woman, it's one thing to be a mother and have all of the anguish over your children. It's another thing to be a godly mother to know how to do battle. So I'm going to talk to you about some mothers in the Bible. I want you to be prophetic moms. And I already told you about my first prophetic, personal prophetic public word. And, uh, and, but I'm not talking that you have to be a public prophet. But I believe that every believer needs to be prophetic. What's that mean? Tuned to hear the voice of God. Touch your ear for me. Men do it with them. Tuned to hear the voice of God. Just like you tune a radio, you tune your ear. God, speak to me. God, lead me. God, talk to me. God, tell me how I should pray. God, help me. Tuned to hear the voice of God and sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. Just touch yourself tight, lightly, lightly, lightly. Sensitive, sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. When a, when a woman meets God regarding children, There's something that happens that at the juncture where 
She meets God asking for a child or praying for a child. That juncture where a woman's need regarding a child meets God's need because God needs your child. Your child is part of God's plan. Whether he or she knows it yet or not, God makes deals with mothers. And God makes covenants with fathers. And your child may not have any understanding of what God has for him. He may be still a baby. Or it may be as with Hannah and with Manoah's wife. God used a barren woman or Elizabeth or old Sarah. God made deals with those mothers. And sometimes barrenness, as painful as it is, and as long as it may last, it can be the most anguishing thing and I don't want to be insensitive that there may be barren women in the room. And again, single women. It used to be single women were barren women. Our culture has changed considerably. And single women can adopt children and raise them for the gospel. But God knows the cry of the heart of a woman for a child until the feminist movement came. It wasn't the feminist movement. That's what I want for femininity. The juncture where a woman's need meets God's need is the point where, I want you to say this with me, the G-E-P-G, G-E-P-G, stands for the greater eternal purposes of God. Say it. The greater eternal purposes of God. Let me hear the men say it. The greater eternal purposes of God. The women say it. The greater eternal purposes of God. That is the point. When a woman's need meets God's need, that is the point at which the greater eternal purposes of God begin to be fulfilled in her life. And then she becomes personally fulfilled. And especially where that has to do with her children, she becomes fulfilled. But if she doesn't have a child, then God has other ways to make her fruitful. And she can be a Gladys Aylward. Does anybody know that name from missions? Well, get her biography. The little lady in China who led a band of, what, a hundred or so children out of danger in China. Gladys Aylward, A-Y-L. W-A-R-D. 
You can mother. You can have all of that affection and all of that, that need for nurturing. All of that can be taken care of. School teachers, do it. And uh, school teachers who have their own children can sometimes find the kids at school tugging their hearts and becoming just as much a child for the rest of her life. But they're nurturing other people's children and sometimes in ways that their own parents aren't doing for them. Let me give you from the story of Hannah, chapter 1 of Samuel it is, four phases of need. The first is the need of barrenness. That is the state of need that Hannah was in, the state of need. Then it came to bitterness. She was in anguish because of not having a child, though her husband loved her. And I've asked all over the world, many places in the world, I've asked women to answer immediately. I'm not going to ask you to answer right now. Hannah had the love of her husband, but no child. Peninnah had the children, but it doesn't say he loved her. If you had to make a choice, which would you choose, the love of your husband or children? And I don't want you to answer out loud. It's amazing what I get. But God's plan is for you to have the love of your husband and then children. Hannah had the love of her husband, but no children. But she had an angry woman who had several children boys and girls, sons and daughters, so that makes at least four. And she provoked Hannah sorely, S-O-R-E-L-Y, that means make her sore. And when Hannah finally got to an altar and poured out her soul before the Lord, she said, it's out of the bitterness of my spirit, when her priest didn't understand what she was doing. And she explained to him, I've poured out my complaint to the Lord, and it's out of the bitterness of my spirit. The second phase of need is bitterness. It doesn't have to be resentment. It doesn't have to be anger. Peninnah tried to provoke Hannah to anger. But instead, she provoked her to prayer. And Hannah found an altar. She didn't pour everything out on, at the meal. She held it. She couldn't eat. She couldn't drink. And husbands learn from Elkanah. When your wife isn't eating or is quiet, he asks four questions. And if you look on your page, there's this much space on the page between the two questions there's no answer in between because when a woman doesn't know why she's crying don't expect her to tell you it starts somewhere deep inside and it rises and she just knows there's no peace and if you ask her what's wrong do I need to ask the husbands what's the first answer I'm fine or nothing or or I don't know. And 
And if you study its first chapter, I'll give you the verse, husbands, because it's the best guide you can find. It's in verses 5 through 8. And so first is, why are you crying? Now, there are lots of ways to ask that question, aren't there, men? I mean, excuse me. Why are you crying? What tone of voice? I'll speak it in monotone. Why are you crying? But it can be, what are you crying about? Or I've had so many women tell me I can't cry in front of my husband because it makes him angry. But Elkanah kept pressing. First question, why are you crying? No answer. So he's trying to figure it out. And he notices that she didn't eat anything, and he's the one who cooked. Now, when men cook, they study whether anybody eats what they cooked. Papa Jones used to love to do steaks and all through the meal. How's your steak? Is it, is it the way you wanted it? Do you want me to put it back on the grill? Is this good? But he's noticed that she's not eating. So he says, why aren't you eating? Or did you say, why aren't you eating? Don't think so. Let's see, eating stomach, man, the way to a man's heart is through his, oh, this must be a heart problem. Why is your heart grieved? Answer, nothing. She's holding everything in. And so he works really hard on this one. Okay, what makes her heart grieved? Oh, we've been here before. This happens every year. Oh, it's children. It's barrenness. So he's really going to comfort her. And God bless every husband who tries to comfort a crying woman. She cries, he tries real hard. And so what he means to say is, I love you even if you never have any children. That's his heart. How'd it come out? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Whoops. Because a woman doesn't want to choose between the love of a husband and children. And God's order is husband, children. She doesn't spew anything. She waits until they have finished eating and drinking. And then she takes off and runs to an altar and pours out her soul to the Lord. Her priest doesn't understand. But there she makes a deal with whom? With God. If you will give me a son, I will give him to you. She promises a Nazarite vow for herself and for her child. Now, there's another woman who did the same thing. Samson's mother made a Nazarite vow for herself and for him. And I often, in speaking to young men especially, ask them, 
Which Sam are you? Are you Samuel, who kept the vows, embraced the vows, lived his whole life to be an old man, and when they wanted a king, Saul, Judge Samuel asked them, have I ever defrauded any one of you? Have I ever stolen one of your cows? Have I ever taken one of your donkeys? Have I ever been dishonest? And they said, never, you've never been dishonest. What a record for a spiritual leader. But Samson, with all of the anointing that God gave, and this is where it comes to a hard part for a mother, when he first looked at a Philistine woman and said, I want her, and told his mom and dad, get her for me. And they said, but isn't there a beautiful girl among the Israelites? And he said, get her for me. And there comes a time when mothers and fathers have to reckon with a reality. Maybe the first one is that your children aren't perfect. But the second one is, even though you've kept your vows with God. Now, I don't know whether God consulted you first. He's never consulted me about it. Whether he should give free will to your babies. When do you first realize that your child has his own will? Okay. And this is what's hard for Christian parents. To realize that you've served the Lord, you gave your children to the Lord, you dedicated them at an altar, you made vows. For me, I truly believe I had no choice. <laughs> that My parents made vows to God regarding all four of their children before we were even conceived. And I know that I was deliberately conceived to serve God. But not every child yields early. Now there's a wonderful thing that happened and that can happen, that people can walk away from the Lord, your children can, and the battle is what the mother and the father take for the child to be saved, not just eternally saved, but saved from the traps that they are running into. Saved from the bondage that they have embraced. Saved from the dictatorship over their lives of someone's will. And the trap that that person can be in. I could tell you many stories. I walk with many families. But God gives to mothers a will to go into battle against the worst that the devil can put to her children. And for Samson, thankfully, he did cry out to God one more time. And he did bring the whole house down on the Philistines. And it is a strong, strong word to say that he slew more Philistines in the day of his death, 
than he had done in all of his life. And I saw it on a Sunday school paper a child was carrying out where he built, pulled the house down. And he killed more on the day of his death. And just looking at that Sunday school paper, my heart wept. That's a sad statement. Because the Bible says he began to deliver Israel from the Philistines. He only began. He only began. And on the day of his death, he did what he was supposed to be doing all those years. But let's give thanks for the one more time. Let's give thanks for a child that repents in his latter years or after years of sowing wild seeds. And I join with every mother in this room whose child is out there somewhere, whether you know where he is or not or she is, and, or you, if you do know the situation, God is always in the business of reconciling, of redeeming, of restoring, of rebuilding. I've been with a mother who, who hadn't heard from her son for 24 years. She didn't know whether he was alive or dead. And she was on her deathbed. And I stood beside her. I called that boy to his mother. Wherever you are, you call your mother. And in the name of the Lord, I commanded him to do that. And had a conviction that he was still alive. I left there. Came back the next day. Guess what? called his mother. And I have to think now, I have so many stories. I think he came home for her funeral. It had been years, but God redeemed enough in the last days. I'm going to believe with every person in this room for a quicker redemption, for a turnaround, for a coming to terms. Now I just want to tell you about being a prophetic mom. Oh, I didn't take you past the bitterness. It goes to brokenness, and then it comes to blessedness. And Hannah got a child for God. I can tell you there are four travails of women. The travail of barrenness, but men can experience this too. As we have Paul speaking as though he is a mother, my little children, for whom I travail in birth again for you, till Christ be formed in you. He was their spiritual father, but he feels that he was the mother who travailed for their birth to begin with, to come to Christ. Now he's travailing for them to mature, my little children, to mature. John called his little children too and travailed for them to come. There is the travail of barrenness, and it can happen in any part of your life. You can be spiritually barren. You can feel unfruitful in the work that you're doing. God has a plan for birthing something new in your life and through your life, and I would pray that for you spiritually, but I would pray that for you in your occupation, in your, in your work, in your writing, in whatever it is that it becomes then fruitful.
Then, once you've birthed mamas, you've learned, and daddies, the third travail is the travail of bringing to maturity and then releasing out into life. When does the releasing begin, mamas? The second he pokes his head out, you just released him to become an individual. And when you hold him in his arms and he's there just waiting and dependent upon you and upon your breast, that's great. But the first time he pushes you away, you have to decide whether it's good to release him now or not. But there comes a day when release happens. It's called nursery school or maybe Sunday school. And then it's kindergarten. Then it's first grade. And then it's graduation. Comes real fast. And then you leave him. You've made his bed. You've put pictures on the wall in his college dorm room. You've tried to make it look like home. And it will be for him. But mama's not going to be there. You have to release. And this is where you want to know you're releasing into the hands of God. And of course, when you give him to another woman called his wife, then you learn a whole new, whole new lesson, don't you? Releasing to life. The hardest travail of all. It would be likely that there are women in the room who have experienced the travail of burial. The unnatural order. Birth, barrenness, birthing, bringing to maturity and releasing to life. Burial. I've stood by the caskets with mothers of my students that I myself had appealed to. But I tell you something. A woman has more than one womb. You know the word woman was originally in Old English womb man? W-O-M-B-M-A-N, and it was contracted to woman, not woe, man. <laughs> Womb, man. But I tell you this, and every woman here, I want you to respond to me in this. I want you to pay attention. Because the physical womb is the first known womb. But you have... A spiritual womb where you can take a word from God and nurture it the same way that you nurture that seed as soon as it catches in the wall of your womb and you start pouring your life into it. You can take a word from God, nurture that thing. I remember. Uh, I was speaking at uh, Alan Karen Ham's church on Mother's Day many years ago. And upstairs, outside my bedroom, was a big old life magazine. Do you remember those big old life magazines and full-page pictures? And that magazine was on the first look that cameras had inside the womb 
to see what happened to that seed and how that uterus reached out and grabbed it and claimed it and started feeding it and then the growth from within. And did that give me food for my message? Yeah, absolutely. But you have a spiritual womb. And what you need for your children is a word from God or a working of God in your heart that tells you he is going to win this battle. He loves your child. He has a greater eternal purpose of God for your child. And when that word and that sense and that conviction comes into your spirit, there's nothing that can stop you from praying how many hours a day? Gotcha. 24-7. Never leaves you. Never leaves you. But you also have a mental womb. And if you don't think so, let the telephone ring at 2 o'clock in the morning. And as you reach for the phone, what seed came? Something is wrong. And you've already planned to rush to the hospital or something. You have a mental womb. That mind has to be submitted to God so that he can plant. Let me tell you one from the scripture. Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. She sees the long robe and the feet. She assumes. King James says she supposes that it is whom? No. What? The gardener. She assumes that it's the gardener. Now listen to her plea. Sir. Because he asked her, why are you crying? Whichever way he said it. Why are you crying? I hope is the way he said it. Sir. They. Brother Mumford taught us that they are the ones you blame when you don't know whom to blame. They have taken away my Lord. And here's the big issue. This is mothers and sisters and grandmothers. I don't know where they have laid him. Now that's what disturbs a woman. And you guys know it. If you don't tell her where you're going and when you're coming back, right? She doesn't know where you are. That's a woman. She cares. I don't know where they have laid him. But if you know, tell me. And I will go get him. And the idea is, I'll never take my eyes off where he is. That's woman's caring nature. Are you with me? But it was in her head. She supposed he was the gardener. She supposed that they had taken away her Lord. She didn't know, but she would do something about it if she could. So she's asking everybody. That's the mental womb that takes it all the way out to your imagination. You guys, you come home from a meeting. Your wife says, how was the meeting? Good. Oh, what did you do? 
well, we just, three words. And who was there? Well, the regular guys. And you think she's satisfied. Because then she starts supposing. It'd be better for you to tell her. Because Jesus finally said, Mary, Mary, and she turned and looked, and there he was. And she said, Rabboni, Jesus. But that nature is what God gave to woman. And the care that you have for the people that you love, you have to keep submitted to him so he can talk to you and he can tell you whether or not. I want to give you a couple of illustrations of my own mother's prophetic sense for her children. Because you can always be on duty, and your favorite verse, my favorite verse about God, is he neither slumbers nor sleeps. He doesn't, he doesn't fall asleep in his chair, take a nap. He's always awake. And he'll wake you up. So one morning, about 5 or 5.15, up in middle New York, my mother heard a train whistle. And she sat up in bed and said, Lord, save Joel! Out loud. Woke daddy up. Lord, save Joel! And then she looked at the clock. It was only a few minutes after five. He didn't usually leave, my younger brother, sweet Joel. And she said, well, I didn't even hear him leave. He was a teenager, probably 18, 19, out of school, working a job. His car had a double-barreled carburetor. My mother is a light sleeper. She never didn't hear if you tried to sneak out of bed. She didn't hear him leave. So she got out of bed, went to his bedroom. It's dark, turns on the light, he's not there. She goes out, she looks, his car is gone. About three miles down the road was a mile long hill. And at the base of the hill was a railroad track. Right, right as you came off the hill, a railroad track. It was snowy weather. All day long. And she waited. She waited. And all day long, she carried this thing. Joel came home. You know where teenagers head right to start with? You mothers know. He went to the fridge, had his head inside the fridge, Mom was on the other side of the kitchen, and she said, Joel, how did it feel when that train almost hit you this morning? He slammed the refrigerator door closed, and he said, how'd you know? Well, she stopped it. That's how she knows. So he told her the story. It was fresh snow. The roads were slippery. He had never seen a train on that track at 5 o'clock in the morning. And he decided that he wouldn't put his brakes on because it was so slippery. 
And he got to the track, and the train whistle blew. Now, we have to forgive kids, but God redeems everything, okay? My brother was an expert at spinning on a dime. Any of you guys know what that is? Mm -hmm. Isn't it break and clutch at the same time? In fact, he'd had a little reprieve from going to school for a few days because he did it in the school parking lot. And that morning, it saved his life. And he said he went into the spin. He fully expected the tail of his car to be hit by the train. It was right there. Now, Waycross, Georgia, where I've been for 56 years, is called Waycross. The churches try to make it the way of the cross, but it is where all the railways cross. It's a railroad town. You can't go anywhere without it. So you learn. How'd you feel when that train almost hit you? Well, when he stopped spinning, don't you know he had to talk with God? God saw the train coming. God saw her. God woke mom up. She just sat straight up and knew that Joel was at that train. I remember calling my mom to tell her one time that I had made a decision. I had changed my course in a relationship. And she said, oh, I know. I said, what do you mean you know? I just did it. I just had put a ring back in a man's hand. And I came and called her to tell her. Oh, I know. I said, what do you mean you know? I just did it. She said, oh, I had a dream. And I've just been waiting for you to tell me. And I said, Mommy, I can never tell you anything. God always tells you first. And that's when I'm full grown. Tell you one more. There's a tremendous battle. And I'm going to I'm going to ask for that battle song again. Is the team still here? All right. Just as I finish this song, I finish this story. All of my life I dreamed of writing. I loved writing. I'm going to let them get in place because we all have to help them go up the stairs and pick up their instruments. Thank you, team. You know which song I talking about okay all my life I had dreamed of writing when I was supposed to be napping I'd be t writing stories in my head and uh, and is it okay if I tell you that I was always an A student in writing my principal came in to take our class one day and he told us that are A students, when you get to college, 
You may not be A students. You may be C students. Here, you're the cream of the crop. When you get to college, this happened in your state of Pennsylvania. When you get to college, you're going to be with the cream of the crop. That entered into a womb. Which womb do you think it was? That's what I believed. And every time I went to write an essay question, I'd freeze. I'm stupid. I don't know. Then we're supposed to write a short story. I freeze. And it was the worst thing I have ever experienced in my life. But it opened a door for fear. And a spirit of fear overtook me. And it got where when I would sit down to write, my hand wouldn't work. My brain was going in circles. And to get a word out of my brain was impossible. Do you remember putting papers in a bicycle wheel? All right, that's the way it was. And to try to get one of those papers out, it was tormenting. It was causing me for the first time in my life to get a grade below what I was accustomed to. I began to fear the fear. I would fear the fear so much that I would start and I would feel it coming and I would decide can't do this. I remember walking down the hall from the room where I was writing, trying to write, walking down the hall and my head was spinning, totally spinning. But I couldn't tell anyone. Do you understand? I couldn't tell anyone. I couldn't tell anyone. so my second year of college I took courses that I thought didn't have any writing and then one day Dr. Hall announced that we would each be doing a term paper and the best paper would be read in class for class discussion on certain topics and we could choose the topic the day before that I went to the library with all my books and paperwork and I had done my research. I had the cards ready. You remember three by five cards for your research papers? I had my Bible on top of my books. And I said to God, if I experience what I experienced last year, if I experience that today, I promise you, I'll never pick up a pen again. And I'll leave college tomorrow. Nobody heard that. I was sitting alone in the library. And 
And I said, I'm going to start with the outline now. And if you don't help me. But I always have to have a word. And I know the only way to read the Bible is not just to open up. But I did. And it fell open to Isaiah. Remember not the former things, neither the things that be of old. For this day I will do a new thing. This day it shall spring forth. I had the courage. I had the assurance. I had the word of the Lord. I started. It was the easiest outline I ever made. I usually like to do the outline after I've written it. And I wrote the outline, perfect. And I went back because I had to work in the dining room. They made two announcements of meetings that I had to be at. And by the evening, my time is cut short. I went out into the stairwell. Fear began to take me. I prayed there. I started about 10 o'clock, and from 10 to 12, nothing. And it's starting to happen to me. My friend came into the room. She was writing the same paper, and she's still my friend today from back in the 60s. She came and said, how's it going, Sil? I said, well, I'm, uh, I, I'm having a hard time, but I'm going to do it. And she went back to her room to write her paper. My roommate, a very sweet young lady, said to me, Sil, when is your paper due? And I said, eight o'clock in the morning, class has to be there or grades are taken off. She said, if you're not typing by five o'clock in the morning, you wake me up and I will type for you. I had never asked anybody to help me with any schoolwork. Except my mother drew a, drew a cover for me for a term paper. I said, thank you, Jan. She went to bed. Lois was gone. I was alone. I picked up my pen and it came over me. I've never told this story publicly that I remember. And my head began to spin. And I put my head down on my hands, down on the desk, and I said, God, you promised, you promised, you promised. And then it was as though I was over a muddy maelstrom, a pit with swirling mud, mud, and I was hanging over it as though I was going to drop into it. I've never had a torment like this. And it was so long. I didn't know how long. I just knew it was so long. And all of a sudden, that disappeared. Everything cleared. My brain cleared. Everything that I had studied, everything that was on those cards started falling into place like this. I was suddenly awake. I picked up my pencil. So I was writing in pencil and I took those cards and went through them quickly finding that one and that one and the outline and I wrote 
and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I didn't cross out anything and I wrote 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 and I was clear it was as though he was feeding it to me and at five o'clock I realized I'm not going to be able to finish it and type it but Jan said I humbled myself and went over and woke up my roommate, sweet thing, and she pulled the covers up like this around her. She looked at me like this. I said, Jan, I'm so sorry, but she got up, went over and washed her face. Our desks were facing one another. I wrote the pages. I passed them to her. I left for class, said to Dr. Hall, my paper will be here by the end of class. My roommate is typing. He said, it's fine, as long as it's here by the end of I never saw the paper. I never read over it. I didn't know what I had written. Walking out, big old JB, John Bechtel was walking with me. He also had written the paper. And he put his arm around my shoulders. We were going down the sidewalk. And he said, well, Sil, you think you got the best paper? I said, JB, I don't know. I don't know. He said, oh, come on, you know. I didn't know. I never even picked up the pencil work to read it on the weekend. It was so sacred to me. And at class, I was sitting with my head down as Dr. Hall was going down the aisle, passing out papers. And he came to my row and he said, Miss Evans. And I looked up at him. He said, this is an excellent paper. I'd like you to read it for the class discussion. The girl sitting beside me after class said, Sylvia, were you surprised when he said that? And I said, surprised. You'll never know how surprised. She said, I thought your chin was going to drop to your chest. I've never seen you look so surprised. And I stood up and read it and saw words that I didn't even know. A week later, I got a letter. Anybody want to guess? Just guess. What day is this? And mother wrote Oliver Newsy, what's been happening, and then signed it, and then P.S. Oh, I almost forgot to tell you. I was coming upstairs, four, four flights of stairs, and I read this. In case you meet a battle, you need to know that it's already won. And told me what happened to her. A dream. A dream so real that it woke her up. In which she could hear my voice as a child in her house in northern New York where I was a child, DePoville, New York. My father pastored the old stone church there. And she tried to follow the voice and couldn't find me and realized it was coming from the cellar, not, not basement now, cellar. Does everybody know what an old cellar was? Wet, muddy floor and cistern down there and dark and damp and dank. And she heard my voice coming from there and she rushed down the stairs. And I, I was in a corner and a monstrous rat was attacking me, attacking me, attacking me. 
and I'm crying. And she said the only thing she had available was a long board, 10 by 6 or something, that was lying on the floor. And for some reason, her right hand, which is her usual strength, was tied behind her. She had only her left hand. So she tried to take that board and beat off the rat and realized she could not fight the rat. She backed up, and what do you think she did? In her dream, and she woke up pointing at that rack and saying, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And she said, I did it until peace came. I stopped at the second flight of stairs, fell into the corner there, and wept. This is a week afterward. I sat down and wrote to her. We didn't do telephone. We couldn't afford it. And I said, Mom, please tell me, what day was it? And what time was it? And she wrote back, the best I can remember, it was a Thursday night, two weeks ago or whatever it was. And when I looked at my clock, it was 10 after 2. When I came alive, when the maelstrom disappeared, when everything came clear in my mind, I looked at the clock. It had been two hours and ten minutes since I had looked at the clock. It was 2.10 a.m. Stand up and sing for the battles that you may be facing or that your children may be in. And let's expect victory in the place. And I'm praying for every one of you. Take it, please. Go ahead.